Before we get started, if you love this episode, please send it to a friend. Thank you. Welcome to Web3 Galaxy Brain. My name is Nicholas. Each week, I sit down with some of the brightest people building Web3 to talk about what they're working on right now. My guest today is Jose Aguinaga. Jose is head of digital custody services at Seba Bank in Switzerland. He was previously head of engineering at Hopper. Jose is also the creator of passkeys.is and mpc.is, two valuable educational resources that describe and demonstrate passkeys and multi-party computation respectively. On this episode, Jose and I go deep on elliptic curve cryptography, ECDSA, passkeys, homomorphic encryption, distributed key generation, account abstraction smart wallets, and much more. If you're interested in the frontier of self-custody smart wallet user experience, this episode is for you. It was a pleasure talking to Jose, who is knowledgeable, humble, and generous. I hope you enjoy the show. As always, this show is provided as entertainment and does not constitute legal, financial, or tax advice, or any form of endorsement or suggestion. Crypto has risks, and you alone are responsible for doing your research and making your own decisions. Hey, Jose, how's it going? Oh, hey, how's it going, Nick? Good, good. Good to hear from you. Nice to meet you. Hey, likewise. Uh, thank you for having me here today. Of course, I'm super excited. I don't remember exactly how I discovered passkeys.is and uh, your passkey <laughs> expertise, but... Uh, the site is very clean and a, a great resource, and I'm really excited to get into talking about passkeys and AA wallets and everything else you're interested in. Hey, thank you. Yes, uh, it's been a little bit of a side project for me, but I pretty much have been wanted to set up kind of like uh, just a little um, source of information for other people who are struggling with the matter. So, hey, that ended up being just, uh, uh, I don't know how to put it, maybe a glossary and then started to grow into something else and now it's out there so super happy to talk about it and talk about other things going on in the ecosystem around passkeys wallets mpc and yeah awesome so uh tell me a little bit about your background before we jump into the passkey stuff sure a little bit about myself so being working in the blockchain ecosystem i don't know since 2016 funny enough i'm most of my career i've been based in Switzerland, where I'm currently speaking from. <laughs> and I did a stunt in San Francisco. I managed to do a um, small, small software engineering job at Plat, actually. But at that point of time, uh, I think I got so used to, to the European lifestyle. You'll probably see the memes around there. But yeah, I ended up going back. And when I at that point, I was already getting familiar with a blockchain ecosystem. And I will say startups and fintechs were already getting interested around that area. And yeah, I, I, I quickly switched into, participated into a, you know, your traditional ICO in 2018 that I started doing some consultancy around crypto. Then, you know, the whole space took off and eventually took one, two, three roles and one thing led to another. And then, yeah, I mean, fast forward, I would say I've been taking mostly engineering roles in uh, layer zero projects. The latest one I was in HopperNet, which is a privacy mixed net developing solutions on top of the TCP layer for RPC and other other similar stack. Then I I did recently uh, um, almost two years work at uh, CryptoBank here based in Switzerland, and I know the word. Uh, crypto and bank usually are 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 not in the same sentence, but uh, 
<laughs> that is not so uncommon in Switzerland. And yeah, so I've been getting very familiar with the institutional ecosystem. And in, in the meantime, what I'm what I was trying to understand, trying to figure out, because I really come from the more cryptography background, so to speak. Um, I wanted to understand how the enterprise sector was was viewing the blockchain. So I, I came very from the you know uh, we'll call it maybe the DGEN side of things, very DeFi, very you know just just aping to whatever project you could find in 2018. To then understanding how institutional investors and serious institutions and banks are actually approaching the conversation. I'm currently in 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 that context and, and that's where I personally actually found pass keys because in, in you know, the enterprise sector you're always thinking about security delegation the creation of duties all these fancy terms that you know put uh, people in suits at ease but they're they're actually quite relevant right because uh, I mean if you want to handle operational security on a major level then that's actually important so pass keys I mean the standards and I think BB actually from from snowball the previous podcast share a little bit about it, right? It has been along, it has been around for quite some while, but the the reason why it took off is because, of course, Apple integrated with an iCloud version, so you finally had a little bit of a backup, and I think that's when you know other 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 companies and enterprises started to look at it into more serious matter, and of course, also as well in the crypto ecosystem. And, and just before we jump into the the elliptic curve and and passkeys and all this um what is it that you're passionate about is it the blockchain cryptography the enterprise integration what what brings you to the space really i will say really the the blockchain i mean to me my really the the the, the first thing i really got engaged with was uh i mean as many of us into bitcoin the ability to have uh, a immutable distributable open ledger was for me fascinating uh, as I mentioned, I worked in the fintech industry for many years, and I always, uh, quote unquote, hated the, the the entire database discussion. You know, like you're always when you're running, uh, you know, a, a startup, and you're you're in a company, you're always handling other people's data. And maybe at the very early beginning, I saw a lot of the issues around that, and I never really enjoyed working into the you know database section of engineering, which is just very normal. Especially, you know, if you're working in your your web to 2010 kind of uh, startups, and you're always spinning, you know, infrastructure for other people. You're always uh, building and let them come. And, and you know, I never really liked it. And then when when Bitcoin came, and I discovered you could append small data, and people started doing experiments around it, I was like, yes, this is amazing, right? Like you can finally have some openness, and you don't have to trust this small startups that are actually taking care of your, your data or credentials or whatever, but you can actually have this distributed ledger. So for me, I and, and in addition to that, I will say that I was also picking uh, cryptography as, as, a, as, a, as a topic that I wanted to understand that I, I don't think I paid enough attention to in college. <laughs> and then I was like, okay, you know, finally I find something that is just not your quote-unquote boring, uh, you know, secure certificates and things that you only you know hover with when you're doing a, a normal application and i get hooked up so if you add blockchain distributed ledger and then public key cryptography uh, you, you i mean we can talk just about that for hours for sure i would say the crypto part of things is very interesting i mean i really like the whole uh DeFi nft space as well but i probably didn't engage as much as our, our friends that i were you know into the whole trading uh, speculation or you know 
uh, device somewhere in it. But you're, uh, by the sounds of it, kind of a rare breed in the sense that you're interested in the cryptography all the way through to the application layer. So I guess that makes sense why you're interested in passkeys, because uh, it really sort of addresses both parts. Yes, and I, and I think that's also why I think other people are, are being drawn to it, because I would say it's, uh, as you mentioned, right, it's an application technology that people can relate very quickly, right? You can just click a button and then you see this uh, beautiful UX that, you know, in almost our browsers, almost devices, it's just like, oh, you're creating a, a keeper, right? And people are starting getting familiar with these concepts and they understand how they're way better than, you know, traditional solutions. And I think that's, that's what I, I think they're very powerful, right? We're finally aligning ourselves and understanding that uh, passwords are not great. And, and, you know, we have seen this movement in the industry uh, for moving to magic links, to moving to password logins, right? So Pask is, 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 as you mentioned, right, it's very interesting and I got drawn to it and people are working on that because it really it grabs a, a very academic concept, which is public key cryptography, and just push it up to the user and the application. So uh, before we jump into passkeys, what's the essence of elliptic curve cryptography and, and public key cryptography? That's a that's a tough one, right? So <laughs> in terms of, <laughs> I mean, you, you, we, we want to get a. Uh, I have some tough ones in store for you. Don't you worry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think I think depending on how how academic you want to get, but for instance, that one of the benefits of elliptic cryptography. I'll I'll speak on the things that uh, most people in software engineering would understand. When, when you are um, handling tradi your traditional uh, private key, public key uh, mechanisms, if you think about a modular or, or modulus based uh, arithmetic, then that 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 has its flaws, right? It's it's very expensive computational wise. Usually, the bit size of keys that you need to use is is huge, and you could have seen you have seen these these limitations or these challenges in the industry for many years, right? So uh, SSH, uh, all these keys that you have to manage, and, and public infrastructure, you see all these this, this challenges on, on traditional RSA keys. When elliptic curve uh, comes and, and gives you uh, a, faster ability, a faster way to perform and identify common public points that you can agree, and then you can actually generate uh, cryptographic material to then derive keys, then actually then you realize the key space that is needed is, is uh, way smaller, then you suddenly are able to uh, look at the uh, at the at the cryptographic uh, conversation and say, well, why why are we doing all these uh, you know modulus based uh, <laughs> uh, prime number like number theory when we actually can can derive and 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 generate private keys that are faster that are smaller in size and you, maybe five six seven years ago before blockchain or any of this. Uh, topics came into to the mainstream media. The IT industry was already doing some push into into shifting to elliptic curves because of these main benefits, right? So from from a practical software engineering point of view, they have very clear benefits in into how do they operate. And what it really became very clear that they had an upper edge is in signing, right? So ECDSA, the most common signing, I would say, elliptic curve based algorithm over a generic payload, it's, it's incredibly fast, right? And it's incredibly fast. And it's, um, it's something that you, we probably were not used to seeing in, in, in the ecosystem when you see other, other options in the When you say fast, it's, in it's the fast, market. fast to verify or fast to sign? I guess signing is always fast. It's the verification that is the speed Correct. delta? Mm -hmm. Correct, exactly. 
and and you you imagine right i mean we're talking about the cryptographical system it, it, it has been everywhere like it will always maybe 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 the web um or or traditional well not traditional but like one of the most widespread use of technology on on for software engineers is the web and the web was not ex- as exposed to to these sort of tools and this sort of mecha- mechanics uh, until like maybe 2016 2017 when the web cryptography api was actually launched but a lot of you know your your uh, mainframe developers your age same people like all people you know that have been working on mastercard visa they have been dealing with all these things for for years right and and they see they they, they see this this in middle of the shift I participated in, in one of the um, red digital residency programs here in the European Union, pioneered by Estonia, where they issue kind of like an Estonian ID. And, and then you already could see that they were using elliptic curve uh, 384 to generate your smart card. And this is 2016, right? I mean, almost 10 years ago. Uh, and this is incredibly interesting, right? And this is just because these cryptographic primitives are way, way better, way faster, as I uh, we already discussed, and the tools that we had in the past. Mostly, of course, I'm talking about RSA. I, I like how you say 2016 is almost 10 years ago. <laughs> yes. Uh, maybe, maybe I'm thinking too much in the future, but yeah, I'm just pushing for that 10 years. No, for sure. Uh, you're a you're, you're forward thinker. So, so ECDSA is like a specific implementation of elliptic curve cryptography. Obviously, we're familiar with ECDSA from the Ethereum context, but maybe can you explain a little bit about what it is relative to elliptic curve cryptography in general? I mean, in terms of digital signature, I mean, the, the part that it's, it's important is it's mostly because it's part of, you, you can actually do um, a signature on top of, uh, I mean, over finite fields, right? So that is the, one of the main advantages that you have on elliptic cryptography. And as I mentioned, this this actually revolves into faster computations, reduces storage keys, and 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 everything we already discussed. But the the part that that it makes it uh, important is that you can actually uh, use. I will say maybe, maybe maybe put it in one simple way. You can use an, an a public coordinate. And base it into a message hash. You can actually com- compromise it usually two integers or something. You can verify the authenticity and then use uh, elliptic uh, curve operations. All right. So, so this multiplications on two points is the ability to be able to verify that a hash of a particular message message has been generated by the corresponding property of deriving the public point. Now, <laughs> this is. This might not. I mean, this sounds like a lot of gibberish, and and, no, and, and, and again, <laughs> but but if you if you understand what we had before, so if you understand how modulus number theory do do that traditional Diffie-Hellman and public key exchange, then you see this is incredibly interesting because usually to calculate uh, your traditional public key, you need to do exponential number, you need to calculate huge prime numbers, very ineffective. And and you could you have some benefits, which is the ability to have encryption and decryption out of the box, just just of the way how the most RSA works. But for digital signature, and and again the DSA from ECDSA is of course digital signature algorithm. It's the probably among the fastest ways we have right now to verify the authenticity of the owner of a particular private point, right? So so that is 
Um, for a lot of solutions, and again, we're not even touching about crypto, we're not talking about blockchain. For a lot of solutions in the market, you only needed you only needed a signature. Mm-hmm. You you do you don't need it. I mean, you you still could see how how some governmental applications and how or companies were using what it was the most common standard RSA two thousand four A bytes to generate a signature, which was just like ah, this is you know it's like you, you know the phrase right when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So sure, let's let's go ahead and use it. It was never. I will say that, and I mean, maybe I'm speaking too much on behalf of a lot of the crypto people, but it was never meant to be kind of like your to-go tool. Like people have been looking into uh, multiple ESA algorithms for for years, and once we we find uh, found curves that we could agree with that we could feel comfortable with, and then you you can open that you know that whole discussion about these curves and you know safe curves and we will all whatnot, but. <laughs> When, when we get to that point, but right now, um, once we agree that you know we have some basic uh, safe curves, then boom, let's go full speed. And then you you could see and and you saw in many many online applications such as GitHub. Then so and then it's like oh, you can actually uh, use your uh, elliptic curve based keys. You can use any sort of uh, Edward based curves, and then you're like oh wow. This is this people then and people started looking it up. It's like, oh, why why we're not why I'm not gonna use my traditional RSA, you know, the typical tutorial that will do in RSA and they will shift into elliptic curves. And I will say at, at this point, uh, the general common understanding is that they are superior and in all ways capacity when signature is needed. I mean, you can we can talk about encryption and elliptic curves, but I think that is usually most people don't use it, although it's it's it, it's part of in some protocols, in some some data exchanges for for especially also actually in MPC, where where you need to to also do some encryption and, and create some secure channels. But for now, I think ECDSA, EDDSA are most of the algorithms that people know and the advantage on their their improvements over traditional ones. And when you mentioned the uh, GitHub application, that's you're saying for signing commits, for example. Yes. So you yes, can will be, be sure that the person is, who made a commit is really the person they claim to be, not just someone who has well, maybe the the password to their GitHub account. Well, no, that, that, that's a different. So, so yes, in some capacity, but it, you, the the first thing that people did for um for elliptic curves in GitHub was not around um, PGP commits, but more on well verify commits and PGP keys, but more on connecting to GitHub. So usually you create your SSH key for your local machines, such as when you push into a cloud repository, in this case, GitHub, then GitHub says, oh, you are who you say you are. I'm going to allow you to push on behalf of this user that you have registered. And since the inception of, this this is what I mentioned about one of the advantages of of elliptic curves uh, over uh, traditional RSA-based cryptography is that they were huge, right? Like if you wanted to to put like a four thousand bytes elliptic, um, sorry, a public key, then you had this chunk of data. And then imagine that you know if you are a company, you have to handle four kilobytes per user. Then it can get fucking chunky. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so this is mostly what they were used for authenticating yourself against a remote server, uh, SSH on all people that they, all the DevOps in the world and all the sysadmins they have been doing all this for years. And when uh, elliptic curves were supported by SSH, 
it was uh, a breath of fresh air. Let's put it that way. So it, it, the uh, private key is smaller and the corresponding public key is smaller also. Is that right? Correct. Fascinating. Okay, well, I'm glad we we uh, we covered some of the the basics uh, and not just jumping into the the more fun stuff. But uh, now that we've done that, maybe what is a pass key and what's the point? What, what oh, from a user's perspective, what's the point of a pass key versus uh, say a password? Yes. So from a standard, let's put it this way: from the web standard, uh, the Web3C standard, I'll put it that way, a pass key. Is nothing but the quote-unquote commercial name of the WebAutN workflow for generating a key pair into a user's device. So, passkey was a little bit. Of, it was it was maybe marketing for let's say Apple passkey, mm-hmm. but it's kind of like the now the two-goal word for describing the this WebAutN workflow where your device uses uh, biometrics on whenever it's available or any sort of, uh, and we will get into that, but we'll, it, will, it can use biometric authenticators or roaming authenticators, aka YubiKey or, or some sort of, uh, any, any sort of hardware-based device uh, to then generate uh, private key and public key on your device. The, the important part here is unlike traditional uh, secure key generation mechanisms, these, these standard ensure that the generation was done on your device and the private key will never be exposed, but you could still sign data with it. Now, the, the passkey standard and what we understand as passkey is, is that it's just a key pair that is expected to be used within a, a traditional web out and uh, workflow, which means to register your a public key of your device to a web out and enabled server. The server then keeps the public key of that particular key pair. And then whenever you come back, uh, you match you 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 match the, the username to that public key. And then the server request is uh, with this public key and you provide a signature against that uh, to showcase you uh, and you, you all have the private key of that public key, and then the server grabs a signature, which you can then verify very quickly, very fast. Again, a little thicker against the public key that they have in store. Now, so so that just is, a, before yeah. you go, so to summarize for someone who is maybe more familiar with the cryptocurrency blockchain space than the cryptography space, pass keys and WebAuthn are kind of a set of uh, procedures around an elliptic curve. Uh, or e- is it, would you call it ECDSA as well, or or not? Uh, yes, for sure. Yeah. So so so, so it, it, it's yeah. very similar, but it's uh, like the same technology, uh, private public key pairs, but a standard process around generating them and interact on device and interacting between the device and the server for authentication under this web authentication protocol. But it, it's under right. under the hood, it's really the same kinds of technology and process as getting a, a wallet for Ethereum or Bitcoin and having it generate the private key either on your Ledger, Trezor, or MetaMask, or Rainbow, or whatever you might be using. Um, but some specific interaction on top of that uh, that requires that the, the, the private key be generated on the device itself and uh, some standards around passing the public key to the server so that it can authenticate you in the future. Correct. I, I think that I will say that the only thing that is different, and this is more, more of a feature than a bug, I will say, is that the, 
the past cure or slash Gordon workflow was never sort of intended to be an isolated uh, ECD, ECDSA sign-in mechanism. So it, it was always expected, like the, the past keys were always expected to be created within the context of WebAutN. And what that means is that you can generally, as you mentioned, you can have the same behavior you have in your traditional MetaMask wallet, which you generate a key, and then you have the public key, and then you use the public key to derivate your Ethereum Matters account. But in the past keys world, uh, a, you never get access to the private key. You have no way to get access to the private key. And B, that public key that you have to be able to derive any sort of uh, account addresses in whatever blockchain we're working with is expected to be sent to to a third-party server. And we're, like we'll talk about this. I'm, I'm sure about it. But now we we're not really doing that. We're not. We're kind of like using something that we found that was meant for something else, and we say, hey, why don't we? do some blockchain magic with this. <laughs> so before we go any further, can you just define WebAuthn? Sure. I mean, web authentication, I think the, the full name is just web authentication. It's just not much. Yeah, yeah, uh, you're right. Not, uh, yeah. I, it might, I might be mistaken, but it, it's definitely um, a worldwide, uh, world, worldwide web consortium, so we create C uh, standard, and it's part of the FIDO Fido two specification. If I'm again, just take with a grain of salt here. Yeah, you're right. But this you're is right. this is this is all the, the the standard that pretty much ensures or guarantees that a password is no longer needed for engaging in an authentication system. So uh, an important part is that pass or about N is always trying to target a multi-factor authentication. It was it is. Not really. The, the goal is not always to just fully replace a password, but instead being a supporting authenticator against a user's identity. And right now, if you if you think about a traditional second factor authentication, you'll have like OTP, SMS, which you should never use, as, as we have seen <laughs> in recent events, uh, unfortunately. But it, it, there was never an standard for for that sort of second device that supports you. Um, WebAuthn was that, or, or WebAuthn it is that. It's, uh, it's standard for generating a passwordless authentication process using roaming or hardware uh, roaming or biometric authenticators, and creating an, an attestation that allows you, on a private matter, uh, create an authentication layer for whatever platform. So it, it's a standard from W3C. It's an API that will be accessible anywhere where a modern web uh, browser or OS uh, exists. And it's sort of standardizing all these private-public key pair interactions between the uh, web application or, or native application that you're interacting with and a server that it's trying to authenticate with. And, and that's that's basically what WebAuthn is, right? Yes, I think... Um... One part that I, I, I we should not make this as a small feat, like the fact that all major vendors like Chrome, Firefox, Edge, Safari, they have agreed on this and they have implemented it successfully in most modern browsers and operating devices is is a major feat. <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, we shouldn't ignore. So Google, Microsoft, Apple, uh, YubiKey, Mozilla. Everybody who has a, a major stake in the platforms that most people are using is adopting uh, WebAuthn and as an extension, passkeys. 
Correct. I mean, now you made me open. Can I use without angels to see the, the adoption? <laughs> Double check. Ninety <laughs> percent. Yeah, that's. I mean, anyone that has been in the web ecosystem for the past five years plus, anything that has ninety percent is is amazing. Especially because it's also not that old. Like it's not that new, but it's also not that old, right? Which is it's impressive. So yeah, I see on the super. site they say uh, since January twenty nineteen. It's supported in Chrome, Jesus. Firefox, Edge, and Safari. So pretty good, pretty pretty recent, but yeah. uh, pre- almost, almost ten years ago, right? <laughs> <laughs> I've got many. Uh-huh. So uh, okay, so how do pass keys differ from the ECDSA? And this is going to be a mouthful, but the SECP two five six K one, or we'll just call it K one for short. Uh, the K1 elliptic curve that we're familiar with from Satoshi having chosen it for Bitcoin and uh, ultimately Ethereum inheriting the K1 curve. W- what's different about pass keys? Yes, so that's we're going to do a lot of SegP to <laughs> K1. <laughs> but the, usually the um, the easiest way to, to describe it is is uh, by the last two digits. So um, K1 stands for a couple score. So that is, that is uh, usually the, 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 the the curve that is used uh, as a reference point for calculating the public the public key, and then on the um, on the R one it's a random curve. So j- just to be clear, R one is the pass keys variant, Correct. and K one is the one in Bitcoin and Ethereum, or EV- EVM, and, and I should say. Exactly, and and Cobbler's curve is a very specific curve that allows specific arithmetic operations given particular use cases, and again that that's the one. Uh, that was picked by by Satoshi in its white paper, and it was it became very famously because of Bitcoin and and the Satoshi white paper, right? I mean, I I think uh, it was not if, if if I'm talking about again just moving from the cryptography enterprise boring world, I will say that code scores were not as popular because usually in the enterprise sector you you have to use the the National Institute of Standards and Technology, aka the NIST. Uh, curves because in in many places, particularly if you ever did uh, any governmental based contracting work, uh, those were the, the the tools that you were pretty much forced to do, right? And that's why passkeys uses R1. Now, as you as you probably already mentioned, and I think it was already mentioned one of your podcasts already. One of the reasons why Bitcoin and Ethereum was picked the the Cobbles curve was because there's a there were always rumors about uh, potential backdoors around the the R1, the random, the random elliptic curves. But as of today, uh, th- that's still just you know kind of like word uh, in the street, so to speak. There's no proof whatsoever, uh, and that's why uh, as of today, you you have major tech billionaire ba- billion based companies that are implementing this as part of the cryptographic ecosystem, and that's why passkeys is uh, the R1 or P256, which is another way to, to describe it. So if uh, if people want to hear more about that, they can check out the 7212 episode from uh, a few weeks ago. But in short, the elliptic curve is described by a formula. And uh, in the K1 variant, some of the constants, some of the numbers in the formula are zero, which makes it faster to compute. And in the R1 variant, these constants or coefficients, I, I don't even know. But some of the numbers in the formula mm-hmm. are chosen by, well, were 
I guess I don't know the details of the process, but the NIST standard has certain numbers in those positions wherein the, the curve that the K1 curve that Satoshi chose there zero in the NIST approved R1 curve, there are numbers there. And yes. there is no openness uh, in the cryptography community about where these numbers came from, which makes people worried that they are very specific numbers that maybe somebody involved in the design process has some insight into a backdoor where they could, I don't know, I, I guess the fear is that you could generate, you could, you could detect with a private key from just having a signed piece of data. Right. And, and also potentially, I mean, if you can do that, then you can also forge data. The forged signatures, I should yes. say. Yes, it, it's a lot about, yeah, exactly, about a signature forging and the ability of signatures being able to, to leak some information based on signatures. But that, that's, I mean, that's really also out of my deep, right? It's, this is a, it's a heavy, uh, <laughs> heavy prime based aromatic that even 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 the the the, uh, the numbers and the parameters, like that you mentioned, I think that was a very good podcast. The, the, the issue is the transparency, right? The, the, the way some of these standards were picked and the way that the formula is based, uh, you nailed it, right? Like so, so I, I believe maybe B, maybe A, the, the parameter that is, is zero on the couplet curve, right? So, uh, but yeah, <laughs> so and we talked about it a little bit in that other episode, but um, being zero for those constants uh, makes it a little bit faster to calculate, uh, which may be one of the reasons why Satoshi picked it, uh, but also. Uh, yes, what was I going to say? It's zero, but also, I guess the, the concern is that there's some John Nash character uh, in the background who has figured something out about the these particular numbers for the R1 variant. However, it has been adopted by all of these major corporations. Not clear if that's uh, uh, <laughs> what that says, but the takeaway that most people seem to have is that because it hasn't been proved to be compromised so far, it's more or less okay maybe especially for consumer applications. But if you plan to have a vault with millions of ether in it uh, and you would like it to be yes. the most secure possible, then maybe you don't want a passkey as a signer that can control those assets. Yeah, and, and again, I think, I think what it's, what passion is, what it's really, I'm going to use maybe a, a, a fancy word, really cool about it, is that, I mean, you have to understand that elliptic curve math has been around for years like more than 30 years <laughs> and this is not like this is not me uh, exaggerating as if i'm saying in 10 years uh into the future right i think the original couple curves work it was in front of the 80s maybe uh, i mean i need to double check again but a lot of the mathematics around these digital signature operations and a lot of these ciphers in just just general as a cipher and, and curves uh it's over 20 years right nobody was thinking i mean i think the first digital cash paper was early 2000s like just just the the very you know before the satoshi paper anything around that and even i mean people were, were recently on twitter probably like oh there was some work about it nasa in 1997 yes still all the bricks that we are building or, or you know, or castle on top uh, have been around for 30 years, right? So nobody ever thought that we could use these primitives as a way to secure millions and millions of dollars, right? So that's that's just the fact of, of 
the the ecosystem as we it did, is today. We did talk about it t- uh, slightly on the other episode, but uh, it is a shame that the these uh, constants in the R one variant were not summoned with a like a KZG ceremony style process, right. so that e- even if uh, all but one actor is dishonest. Uh, then you get uh, a good source of randomness. It's a shame, and I wonder if uh, NIST is thinking about incorporating that or, or not. <laughs> I also think so. So definitely, definitely, that that that's a that's a, an interesting way to 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 solve some of the. I mean, this one of the benefits of all these these key ceremonies. But I also will say that maybe, and this is playing too much of the advocate, the amount of cryptographers that Bitcoin and Ethereum has produced over the last. Years, I guarantee you that is uh, tenfold. That you know, working for your uh, PCI smart card, Mastercard provider uh, in the in the nineties is is huge, right? And I think uh, we we now have a very uh, different set of tools and a different approach of some of these solutions, just because this field became so exciting. I mean, it's the same with with the uh, with uh, AI, right? I mean, I still remember uh, learning about AI in, in college, right? And that is definitely more than 10 years ago. Um, and it, it was nothing, right? I mean, nobody got excited about backtracing. I couldn't see anybody really. You know, we had at 7 a.m. in the morning these classes that people were just, just struggling to, to, to just go through, right? Um, because it was just not not sexy, right? People were talking about distributed computing and there were other things that people were paying attention. It was the same with cryptographic uh, primitives and cryptography in general. As I mentioned, I, I never really, it was hard to see the value of understanding the underlying black boxes of all these magical processes. You really had to be captured by the math or by the the algorithms, right? Or even the history. There's a really good history, I think it's called Codebook, uh, that describes the, the history of cryptography and ciphers and you probably know the Caesar cipher and all these things, cryptography or the art of hiding things has been uh, around or, or, or human history for, my, for millennia, right? But we now have a very clear use case, like people that are smart enough to understand the cryptographic primitives around blockchain or can get really good paid jobs. They can get really, uh, they can maybe become uh, security auditors, not saying hackers, but yes, that can also be a pass, which was not an option anymore. The same way that now uh, your traditional machine learning expert can become an AI or prompt engineer if you want to, and also get a, a very good situation. And, and for instance, maybe this could be a good segue, but MPC, right? So MPC, again, has been around for the past 40 years. And nobody really put attention. Everybody knew about the millionaire's problem. And then suddenly someone say, what if we do actually distributed key generation? And then what if we use it for this particular use case? And boom, now we have multi-million dollar companies in the enterprise sector providing digital custody solution on MPC. Yeah, absolutely. So basically what you're saying is uh, Bitcoin is the rock and roll of uh, cryptography and... Uh, maybe Ethereum and account abstraction and multi, multi-party com- computation problems are doing the same thing around uh, even further topics in deeper, this deeper area of multi-party cryptography uh, that, that previously was quite nerdy, but now has a real practical application that we'll, we'll get into. For sure. I mean, before you wouldn't hear much about elliptic curves and, 
in many places. But hey, now you can actually engage and hey, uh, listen to a cool podcast about it. Huh? Well, you're too, you're too kind. So uh, just before we jump to MPC, um, I just wanted to really be clear: when you create a pass key, um, the pass key, the private key, is created on the device, and then the public key is communicated to the server. Is that the only information that's communicated to the server? Like, let's say if I make a website. Uh, and I want you to be able to log in with a passkey. I can ask you to create a passkey in the the website, and then I just receive on the on my API on my server side. I just get the public key. Um, you also uh, get the raw ID of the of the public key, well, the key in general. So it, it depends on. So usually, what happens? So there's a few things. So the first one is the server doesn't. You can execute, and this is one of the things where I think I got sucked into passkeys. You can use passkey without a server. Like you can tell a browser, "Hey, generate me a key," and have no server involved. This is this is extremely important. And again, it was not meant to be the case, but that is that is a reality. You can choose once you complete the the, the expected workflow of the passkey uh, key generation to send the public key to a web app handful. And that's how some MPC solutions like uh, iGlue and and Lead Protocol use. Uh, to, to create wallets and all these things, but you don't have to. So, so that is that is expected workflow, but the prompt of the key generation, it's all client-side technology. And the second part is once the server side or the, let's put it, the, the counterparty that it's able to authenticate you knows information about you, usually they need a way to ID you mostly by a raw, like an ID that says, hey, this is the, the key that belongs to you, or the public key. And the public key is extremely important because that's how you're going to verify signatures. Um, but the, the, the browser specifications, they don't always know, they haven't agreed on whether it's a must requirement. There, there's a couple options where you can say, you know, do you also need to keep the raw ID? But for instance, uh, and I think, again, Vivi commented on this, um, a little bit of a bad user experience is that you don't know or you can't know whether the user has a passkey uh, that you have, right? So right. you have to prompt it, and then if they don't have it, then you have to create it, and it's kind of like a blind guess. But that's that's the two pieces of information, the public key and an ID and that matches a unique ID for that key. So this, this ID, is it useful for anything? What, 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 how can it be used? It's it's just a parameter that you use for for prompting the key. To be really honest, it it also okay. it's like an index, and I would say for the device. Um, well, but why not it. just use the I, public key for that? Why do you need this extra data? Is it is is, is there a clear use? I think it's just to be really honest. I think and, and again, don't call me here, but I think that is just part of the the specification. Like if you if you go. So when you when you are prompting, so the 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 prompting of the web opting workflow for the navigator dot get credentials, uh, which is the the code that is needed for prompting a passkey on a user device, uh, I believe it needs the the raw ID uh, and the the actually it might not need the the okay so I I remember now so the public key is what you as a server want to verify against. Mm-hmm. And the raw ID is the data that you might have for identifying the key that it's available on the I see. on the on the user. So a better user experience can be that if you are able to actually can actually see 
and ensure, hey, please just prompt between this list of raw IDs rather than all the passkeys that user might have. Not that much of a better user experience, but at least it's, uh, it's something. So you mentioned this, uh, you made reference to the conversation with Viv about Snowball and Igloo Tools, uh, where she talks at the end of the episode about this uh, UX problem, one of, the, yes. uh, one of a handful of UX gotchas with passkey integration, which is you as the website or app developer don't know if the user has passkeys already or not. And you are required to use two different um, methods on this WebAuthn API, one to sign in and one to create. And so you need to uh, sort of ask the user which one they want to do. You can't just uh, can't just present it like an SSO OAuth sign in where it's like a, a big Gmail button. Instead, you have to give the option. Right. So that, that that's a bit of a right. that, that's a bit unfortunate. I don't know. If, do, do you have any sense if if that'll improve or we're kind of stuck with that forever now? I mean, that that's a little bit of very briefly what we mentioned about the, the raw ID discussion, right? So so you can keep on the client side some information about the keys that you know, mm-hmm. but the the workflow as a, as, as the, the expected workflow was always uh, to be done against an authenticated user, right? So we discussed that the, the root or source of passkeys without end is oh, to improve or to move away from the, the password less setup, but it always comes from an authenticated user. So you cannot really, I mean, only in the crypto world, you can generate a user with a with a, only the pass key because we can do account abstraction and all this magic on top of it. But on the web to world, they have no idea about crypto and where this protocol was originally designed for. The goal is that you log in into your traditional user password, magic thing, whatever. And once you're there, you set up a passkey as a second factor, uh, uh, factor authentication. If ah, because again, we 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 only allow the syncing of a cloud device these literally this year. And in the in, the, in what it could happen in the past is that if you only allow the user to log in with let's say a passkey, if the user lost that device, then they couldn't access the the the, the system anymore, right? Which is just not the idea. That's fascinating because in the demo, I think it's on the phytoalliance.org site, they have a demo where they show off sort of cross-platform uh, passkeys, et cetera. And they even demonstrate a banking application and a workflow for upgrading people from password-based, username password-based authentication to passkey only. So it seems like they are at least a little bit aware that you might just want to have passkey authentication and ditch the password or whatever other kind of you know prior authentication and not, not use it as a second factor, but use it as, I guess, a second factor in the sense that you maybe are using biometrics and iOS or, or whatever operating system is the one that's, uh, that's, that's authenticating you initially, but then that grants you access to the pass keys, which are really used to establish the connection with third-party services. So it's, it seems like maybe they've, they're becoming hip to it. Yes, and, and I, I mean, I know exactly which, which demo you're talking about. And I think that's, that's where exactly where the term has keys come from because I do think within the context of Fido, WebAuthn, zero blockchain, zero crypto, passkeys was meant to be the thing that synchronizes over the cloud, right? So we, we briefly mentioned about roaming, roaming authenticators, um, and, and I think the word is not biometric, is let me see if I have it somewhere here, cross platform authenticators, right? So the, the sorry, platform authenticators and cross-platform authenticators, right? So, so the difference between a biometric, let's say a touch, touch ID, which is in your keyboard, and a uh, key that you plug into your computer, right? Uh, 
And in the context of passkey, that YubiKey device will always be on that hardware device. If you add that as your sole access to your system and you lose that YubiKey, then it's game over for you, right? It's never a good option when you have that. Right. However, if you're able to synchronize across platform, and that's where the name, um, sorry, a platform authenticator comes from, then you can go to another device. So let's say I, I log in with my iPhone and I go out with another device and then the device is there because the passkey has been synchronized. And that's, that's the, the powerful, I, I think, uh, maybe <laughs> I'm, I'm quoting her too much, but I think one, one of the things that I think uh, it was, was not, I'm not saying that she was mistaken, but I, I don't know whether uh, she, the way she phrased it might have been 100% accurate is that you cannot back up a passkey. I, th- I think the concept of passkey was always meant to have like a cloud version in mind. Mm. And that's the the only operating system that is able to do that right now as of today is Apple. And even then, if you're even removing the key, the, the iCloud equation first, then you can back up a passkey with another iPhone. So even if you, I've done, as you can imagine, I mean, this is the whole goal of that passkey.is is that I do all these experiments and quirky videos and whatnot. You, if you have, let's say, your, your iPhone with an Apple ID, Nick, and then I go close to you and you have been my contacts and I have a very different Apple ID, you can airdrop me mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. A, passkey, a passkey for whatever login account. Uh, but the only condition is... Uh, I have to, it's, it's only airdrop and I have to be in your context. Uh, that uh, is possible. Other applications, uh, other platforms are enabling this over QR scanning, right? It is possible to, to communicate them via camera, is it not? Or is that just yes, for, only... for doing the link between a, a sort of dumb device and the device that holds the pass key? Yes, exactly. So if you don't have a biometric uh, device or, or any device that it's able to actually uh, that, that was actually one of the questions that was in the uh, 4337 group, uh, which is like, well, if I don't have a device and I see the QR code and I scan, where does the key is generated? It's just a way to communicate between the two devices and, and one device that is dumber than the other says, hey, give me give me a hand, like I need you to, to, to generate this. And it's the same way. If, if you want to log in with that device, it will also prompt you a QR code and then you will sign the, the login part with the with the, the mobile device, and then you will get access to it. So that's that's familiar for anyone who's maybe I, I don't know if it still works this way, but something like WhatsApp. If you want to use it on the desktop, yes. you scan or there's a way to sign into Discord this way. It's not the only way, but basically a QR code which you authenticate from a device like a, a phone that has biometrics. Correct. So the other device just has like a temporary session into it. So so okay, so maybe I, I confused the two, and it's not actually possible, or at least I haven't seen it to be able to exfiltrate a passkey from a secure device over QR. They, they don't offer that. They, they just offer this kind no. of login mechanism. Exactly, exactly. You, you, you cannot port it from, from a secure device. It's just more like sign. I mean, but you nailed it, right? Like WhatsApp or Discord, they have this this workflow and, and that, that works great. It's just, just having that direct, prompting directly from your phone. And what is really cool is that right on, on most devices, uh, if you have the camera, it would automatically prompt the the you know the, the passkey workflow, so to speak, uh, without having you to download an app or be on the browser. Right. So so I guess maybe the point of all this is that it's we're still stuck in this UX challenge over uh, creating a passkey or signing 
in with an existing pass key because the original workflow was not designed to assume that that would be your only way of authenticating and you'd be relying entirely on iCloud keychain, for example. Exactly. But maybe, maybe and it gets more complicated with crypto, right? I mean, we, we, we have been on the sidelines with the whole crypto equation and, and the whole account wallet and what uh, companies are doing and, you know, like whether you implement your own web out and server and then that's how you validate against uh, uh, some sort of security model or whether you try to send that to a smart contract. But the challenge there goes into the storage of the public key. So you you only have one part that is very important to understand and I have it on my past key, that is, is you only get access to the public key during the key generation process. Yes. Uh, so if you generate a key in the browser and then you never keep that public key on a smart contract in a database, wherever you want to do it, you will never see that public key again and then you cannot verify. That doesn't mean that you cannot do something with that key, but then you effectively lose the capability to verify the signatures from whatever that past key is doing that. And, and that's dangerous because, again, because we're moving, we have moved away so far from God, but we, <laughs> because we have really using, you know, something that was not necessarily meant or designed for 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 blockchain uh, distributed ledger authentication mechanism, uh, you can actually move ahead with a passkey that just don't store anything. You just say like, okay, I'll give you a signature, I'll validate it against my smart contract, validate it that it's a valid R1. Curve and then I'll I activate my smart contract, right? And that's uh, yeah, I mean that's that's dangerous. That's that's what I think. I really like um, expression of you know um, a chewing glass because there are all these you know little mm. edge cases that are extremely annoying. And and again, that's that's why that website was created. And I need to really update it because uh, <laughs> there's uh, more and more things <laughs> popping out there. So uh, I guess we, we didn't really say it flat out, and maybe people who have the context of the other episodes on the subject will understand this. Uh, and if you haven't listened to them, uh, the Privy episode, 7212 and Snowball are the, the three so far, and actually um, uh, Obvious uh, Wallet uh, this morning also. But the point we're driving at here is that you could replace something like uh, MetaMask or Rainbow or Ledger or Trezor's generation of a private key that's compatible with Ethereum or Bitcoin or other uh, blockchains with just a straight pass key that's generated on device in, let's say, Safari or in an iOS app or an Android app or inside of Chrome or Brave or Firefox on a given website. And the pass key that's generated on the device and authenticated via biometrics and potentially stored in a cloud keychain or a local keychain or on a device like a YubiKey, that passkey could directly be a signer on an account abstraction wallet, which is a new form of contract-based uh, wallets where instead of holding the assets directly in a public address associated with a private key, derived from a private key, you instead store your assets in a smart contract, and that smart contract allows anyone with whatever type of authentication you choose when setting it up to execute transactions from that contract, such as, you know, taking, e, you know, moving their ETH around, moving uh, ERC-20s or NFTs around or interacting with other smart contracts. And the benefit of this is that you can have uh, iOS, Android, Chrome, Firefox, Windows native uh, private keys that are built into the OSs and the, and the web browsers such that you don't need a separate piece of software like MetaMask or Rainbow 
uh, or Ledger Live or whatever Trezor's equivalent is. I mean, Yannick, I don't know why you have me here. You nailed the <laughs> point. So, <laughs> I mean, I will it's a little more parts, complicated right? than that. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, I will say two parts, and but, but I mean, so so the two parts that are really good are the key management. So yes, it solves the it solves the equation that is like you don't need to have a key management solution because that comes uh, out of the box with your device. AKA, you don't need a ledger, you don't need a trustor, you don't need any sort of uh, aid to actually generate a secure key and and sign the secure key. Or, or, uh, you or, have or something less secure like a software wallet like MetaMask or Rainbow where they exactly. don't have direct access to the secure enclave because Apple, for example, doesn't include the okay. K1 curve in the, uh, the APIs for accessing their secure enclave. So they can't generate a super, they can't, they can't use the sort of, the best form of yes. uh, private key generation because Apple simply doesn't support it. Correct. That 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 is uh, that is uh, you you hit it right up right in the nail. I, I think that they, there was uh, one wallet uh, I need to remember, but uh, I think it was Don Wallet that they actually open source their key management solution, and they were actually trying to you know they would say like Apple, please solve this right because we really are like not hacking our way through it, but like we're, we're implementing as good as we can uh, uh, for, for key generation and using libraries, audited and whatnot, but it's not natively in, included and, and so it's not supported and secure enclave. Um, but the second part, and I think this is even more important because key generation will get there, but the second part is the signing. And this is, this is maybe if I hover into the enterprise sector and the, the, you, it's hard for the, the average individual in the crypto ecosystem to understand how much money and time is needed to develop a software or a solution that is able to, once you have access to a secure key, is able to parse these magical bytes into something that makes sense for executed transaction, right? So it, it's you have that out of the box. You have ECDSA implemented out of the box. You don't have to do that yourself. You don't have to uh, import the library. The, the fact you have both a key and an ECDSA implementation is extremely valuable. And we're only we're only getting started. I think. I mean, I know it's such a cliche phrase that it's uh, we're early, but it's really. I, I talk with teams, and and we also we also only see that a lot of the times right from from the Ethereum ecosystem, right? But there's a lot of companies and projects out there looking at this technology and really evaluating as, a, as an alternative for a wallet. If you are a new player in the ecosystem, let's say you want to launch your layer one, you know, your own layer one, you're like, oh, crap, I need to do explore, I need to do bridges, I need to do wallets. If you have past case in mind, you might not need to. You might be able to have a wallet out of the box. Right now, yes, the, the closest we have to that sort of the smart wallet abstraction is... ERC-4337, and that is, it's okay, because I think the, the challenge is that, you know, you cannot immediately pour that solution to a non-EVM ecosystem, whereas by having a key and by having ECDSA, you can support pretty much uh, any any cryptographic mm. schema, right? So, for instance, uh, SUI blockchain, right? Like I think they're the, one of the, the predecessors from the original Libra Facebook Meta uh, Ledger project, use the move language, they actually are trying to implement uh, WebAutN as a workflow in uh, the same way that we are, that, that you know, uh, EIP 7212. Uh, they're trying to do the same thing. 
because at the end of the day, you can actually in their ecosystem, you can generate a wallet, you can generate a wallet transaction natively with a, um, a P256 uh, signature. Uh, Tesos, Jesus, I know, I know, it's all uh, <laughs> we we love we love to poke at other 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 blockchains, right? but they actually natively support, yeah. Uh, P two hundred fifty six, yeah. right? So you can actually, yeah, you can actually generate a Tesla's wallet with a with a uh, with a passkey signature. I mean, I don't, I don't think anyone's building that. But when uh, you say P two hundred fifty six, that means R one in cryptographer yes, circles. Yes, it's, it's the same thing. Yeah, but I just, it, it yeah, R one. The cryptographic community just likes to pick names just because you know why don't make things all confusing. But yes, it's the same. So P two five six refers to the R one passkey yes. variant and if you want to talk about the bitcoin and ethereum k1 variant that's when you specify but if you say p256 you're, you're referring to the, the r1 typically correct exactly yeah it, it's a one-to-one name convention just because that's a nist right, standard name right. before we move on i just want to catch one thing uh with passkeys we're I, we don't even use it really to that great of an extent in uh, all the UI versions of uh, ECDSA and Ethereum and EVM. But uh, hierarchical deterministic wallets allow you to generate tons of public keys, and you can actually even have very cool like hierarchical structures where you could reveal some information that could reveal your ownership of a bunch of wallets or a bunch of I mean I guess wallets in the EVM context, but a bunch of right. uh, public addresses. We we barely scratched the surface of that with the UI, uh, like you know a typical MetaMask or Rainbow is just deriving more and more public addresses from the same uh, private key, but n- not any kind of sophisticated hierarchy to them. Uh, however, with passkeys, do you always just have like a one-to-one private-public uh, relationship, or is it possible to de- to derive more from a passkey? No, I think sadly, I do think you always will have a one-to-one because it's a it's a, a x y point into a curve, right? So this is this is your this is a little bit of a, a limitation. There's a couple, I mean, that doesn't necessarily mean that you cannot uh, feed some additional data or additional input and then create like a, a deterministic signature or, or, or something that it's able to, to then generate something close to, to hierarchical determination. But yes, I will, I will say that from, from the passkey perspective, uh, it, is, it is meant to be a, a particular one key pair. And I think that most people are taking that approach uh, for the user wallet. There's some projects that are, are of course, using the other web out and um, attribute, which is the display name and, and kind of like the username. So that's why you see in some demos that some they will prompt the user, but that's also why we would say like, you don't need this. This is not something we'll necessarily use it. It's just that it's also, it could be a nice way to also tell people, hey, you can generate as many keys as you want, um, because you're by having a different username, you pretty much have a new wallet. So, I mean, it's it's nice to have a mnemonic that derives one billion gazillion wallets, but you know it's also nice having a very quick way to generate different wallets um, that can be processed as as their own standalone, and they have the similar security model. I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, do you? Where do I want to go from here? The, the there's so many directions. I do want to get to MPC. Um, I, oh yes, I remember what I was going to ask. 
with pass keys, we have this problem we discussed about either uh, calling the create method on the API or the sign in method. But there's another issue around pass keys being specific to a certain domain, like for example, the domain name of a given web app. Um, yes. Are, are you able to use a pass key generated using on, let's say, passkeys.is on? passkeys.xyz or will iOS and presumably the other uh, OSs following suit not allow you to connect, you know, to, to sign data with that passkey on a different domain? W what are the rules around that? And do you think they're fixed or will they change over time? I've seen some people exploring cross-origin domain requests on passkeys, but my understanding, and this is a good what question that I would like to explore later. But my understanding is this only on the subdomains of the root domain that you have created. So I believe if you create, I might be mistaken, but if you create a passkey within within a, a, a subdomain, I think you can make use of that one from the domain or the other way around. But I don't think it is expected for you to be able to tr to to use the passkey from that you have on Google.com and log in into Apple.com, right? Mm -hmm. I do think, and I'm very curious, and I'm a little bit surprised that doesn't exist yet. We will get to see a way where people, because at the end of the day, they don't really people don't really care about the passkey, and, and this is just more of against a feature not a bug, that the that they web out in specification actually binds you to the, uh, I think, score layer idea, you know, just fancy way of saying just that the website that you're creating that, uh, that path key. But uh, that what that means is that nothing really stops someone to creating a project that is just kind of like your OAuth 2 of passkeys, right? That, you know, if you want to log in into uh, apple.com, then you first go to passkeymanager.io, uh, you register, you get some payload that you sign, and then uh, um, you can just pass that payload to, to google.com or apple.com. Um, because for, for the purpose of, of uh, co-signing this information or, or verifying that you own that key, it makes uh, no difference to, or it's invisible to the website. It's just, again, it's just because the workflow is expected you to have a web app and server enable. But nothing stops from verifying against against a one single server against any other things, and then generate it. I don't know, like a cookie or JSON web token, and then you can do uh, your traditional OAuth too. And you know that that's what some people were complaining about when in in some these new new generation projects that you know we see that on FriendStack or other 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 wallets, right? It's like ah, I I have to create yet another. In another wallet, right? It would be really nice that you know instead of doing this, I I'm, I've just fetched my wallet, right? But uh, yeah, right now I don't think it's the case. Uh, yeah. So is that a correct summary of it? That basically you're using the same uh, context for uh, associating the passkey with the same context, and then that context needs to be imported by different web apps or native apps in order for them to get access to the passkeys across different applications. Yes. I mean, one one question that uh, I don't, I mean, one thing that doesn't let me, well, not that doesn't let me sleep at night, but that I think it's a true challenge against the way of the protocol works is if you have a passkey, uh, let's say against, you know, cool project, like a friends.tech, right? Yeah. And they change domain. Yes. Like if, if your authentication model will have been different than what they use at Privy, uh, but it's still a passkey base. 
to use that same passkey because the protocol doesn't let you use the passkey that you have for a different domain, right? So, so that that could be the case. And then you get, again, this sort of decentralization issue where this says, well, I mean, yes, I can use my key. It's mine. But because of the way the protocol is designed, it, I could not use it uh, if you as a provider of GitHub do something. Right, if it goes away. So you could imagine even a different version. Like, let's say Tornado Cash was hosted on uh, IPFS, but using a, a, a domain like they were using, a .cash domain, and decided to do a built-in passkey-based self-custodied signer on a custom AA wallet that they deploy. Uh, if Tornado.cash were to be seized by uh, the registrar, government, etc., then you would lose access to that site because even if you still have your iCloud keychain, the passkey and iCloud keychain, the keychain won't let in WebAuthn won't let you uh, sign with it unless you can get to that domain. I mean, I don't know what are, and again, this is, this is all this funny uh, edge cases. I don't know if you can trick your computer to mm. sign like if you change the hosts file in your computer and just pretend that you're running that particular domain when in reality you're just changing the host file. I don't know whether you can trick your computer to to use that passkey. Mac OS seems like uh, it might be, well, might be someone, tough. Yeah, someone will have to do that experiment and figure it out. Uh, but yeah, I mean that all brings again to the whole decentralization, right? This is this is also you know, this is a different highway, but I think to, the, to me it's important, which is the, the, a lot of solutions are there that are trying to look at past keys and they they try to really say, okay, well, you just authenticate against my server because it's the cheapest, it's not the most um, you know, valid, uh, it's, it's the easiest way to do it. Uh, I do struggle a little bit with that, right? Because for me, it's like, well, if you're using a security model that actually relies on another central piece of our architecture, I, I don't know how is that any different, any better than any sort of solution uh, that that takes a lot of security into their account, right? Like I like I like Freebie. Freebie. I mean, I did a, a tweet where I analyzed their security model, and that seems pretty legit to me. And sure, you 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 are indeed this kind of setup where you need a secret share to be able to sign a transaction, and if the company goes down, you're out of luck, or if you're never able to get the backup uh, secret share, then you know it's it's tough. But it's not any different if you put a web out at end server. But again, that, that's a whole discussion because again, we go back to the whole, well, if you don't have a, an account abstraction bundler or if you rely on a paymaster, right? Like I do think we 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 one of the I, I really looking forward and I think Peter from Forum Dallas was was early here joining, right? Like that they are actually doing some of the implementations like some of the optimization to be able to actually just use a passkey with a smart contract. That is definitely the most expensive solution, but I think that is the only true decentralization that I think a lot of people will really follow with the ecosystem uh, rather than, you know, just always go for the centralized web out that server. Nothing against that approach. I just think that there will people that they will look at this solution will say, well, uh, this is not an improvement. I rather stick to my own a security solution because that it, it has the, the known dangers that I know. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, while I want to get into the MPC in detail, but before we do, I guess let's finish out the sort of passkey UX gotchas. We talked about it a little bit, but basically if I sign in with Gmail, uh, for example, 
the passkey is not associated with Gmail. So I might sign into two different applications with the same SSO, OAuth, or you know, SMS or social login and not be, you know, both apps are not going to be aware that I already have an AA wallet that's got a passkey signer. Um, I guess there's no real solution for that. That's just, as you say, due to the design of, of the protocol not really being being made for, for crypto and AA wallets. Uh, yes, although there could be a solution, and I explored that with I, I was lucky enough to, to work with the Ceramic Network team. Um, I did a grant for ETH Denver where we wanted to do kind of like a passkey ceramic comp composite DB uh, group solution using the Ceramic Network. And what I realized when I was building that is that if you have a registry uh, of all the, the, let's say, you as a user, same way you have like a ENS, uh, and you're able to say, well, these are all my passkeys, then you can effectively pretty much have an ID that, that you can people uh, look at this a registry and say, well, this is, you know, this is Nick. He has said to the registry that he has these three public addresses. Uh, I'm just going to prompt you for all, for all these three. And if you have any of these three, then, you know, you're Nick. And if you don't, then you're not, right? And again, that could be, that, that could be done by all the dApps that you want to log in and using this context switch. But it's all these edge cases that I think people are still struggling to get, you know, past validation before they can actually look into, you know, registry of public keys or past keys and all those things. Got it. We talked about how if you don't uh, grab the public address at the time that the passkey is created, you'll never have access to it again. Dan Romero of Farcaster uh, mentioned on Twitter a couple weeks ago that Safari 17, which is the current version, introduced mm. this large blob feature. And I think he even implied it in the tweet that you could, basically it lets you store additional data in addition to the passkey that could be retrieved in the future by an app that gets access biometrically to the, the passkey, if I understood correctly. So I, I guess the implication was you could create a new passkey and then store maybe its raw ID and also especially its public address uh, right, or public key, I should say, right in the large blob uh, space alongside the passkey so that future in future cases where you get access to the passkey, you could find out what the public address is without having to necessarily store it off uh, off device. Is that a correct understanding of what large blob enables? Yes, uh, I, I I have seen that uh, that that, that post from from then, and I haven't been able to really explore that. I only recently updated my my computer to to Safari seventeen, so I will be able to give it a try. There's two extensions of the traditional passkey that are out there and people are looking into for multiple use cases uh one of them being exactly the large blob and the public key storage and the other one is the pseudo random generator function that you can also request i don't know if you have seen that one no but that one is being pushed heavy by the one password team because that allows you to generate kind of like cryptographic material that you can then use for encryption and decryption, right? So the passkey, as we agreed on the on the very early at the, at the uh, today's session, is mostly used uh, for for signing and being able to have access to generate ETDSA signatures. It, you cannot encrypt with that. However, if you're able to uh, 
access the extension with a pseudo random federation function, then you are effectively giving your passkey the ability to do an encryption and decryption. And for instance, that's how teams like OnePassword are trying to approach this as a way to say, hey, you can use this as your master password. Mm, right? Very cool. That's very cool. Yes. You also mention uh, in the passkeys.is site the difference between DER and CBOR formats. What's that about? Yes. I, I don't understand that. Yes. So oof, that, that's actually, uh, I mean, if, <laughs> if someone wants to um, really get into the whole passkeys dynamic and w wants to make an, a major improvement on how they are implementing their own past interaction. Um, I, I think that the, one of the best or, or one of the biggest advancements that I did in, in the passkey.is library is uh, being able to um, verify a signature from the raw contract based on calculating the bytes of the ASN.1 sequence. So uh, in other words, the the DER format it's it's just it's just a format that it's that is being used traditionally for packaging uh, for packaging data. So in in you will see in a lot of applications then th th these different formats are able to encode some content and they're able to have a, a binary representation, but they, they they come from from the way a PKI infrastructure has been used, particularly there and the way that data is being sent. Now, CBOR is usually smaller, like you, you have a, a, a binary representation, and as a result, you need to, you need to create, a, like have some parsers that are able, um, are able to get some of the data. Now- When we're talking about data, you're talking about like a signed data? The signature. Okay. It's just the signed data, exactly. So, so this is uh, this there and CBOR discussion, it's about the, the signature. Now, what most people, when, when you get to see this sort of uh, ASN, ASN1 data representation, there is a fair amount of libraries that know how to process the data, say, okay, I know this, parse this, obtain the, the you, you have this information and it gives you the chunks that you need. And then basically, you it, don't know in the CBOR style where the end of one piece of information is and where the start of the next is. The padding is not as exactly. obvious in DER, as DER. Okay. Exactly. That, that, that's pretty much it, right? It's a binary format data. Now, the good thing, though, is you can actually, if you understand how, how the ASN format works and, and the sequence, you can, <laughs> if you're a masochist, <laughs> let's put it that way. <laughs> You can actually calculate divides and and do the 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 what is called like a, a view of the of the specific R and S variables of the signature, which is at the end of the day the only thing you care for from 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 a signature, mm. and actually parse it in a format that is understood by a web cryptographic API. So what what I'm what I'm trying to make a point on on that section of the of passkeys is like yes you can use your Cbor uh, library to be able to parse this information very quickly and get your signature and other relevant information if you might need or you could use this snippet that I uh, that I put together that already knows where the data is going to look like 
and get your signature and then use the web cryptographic API to verify the signature. So right now, because you that data you you cannot verify the signature as it is. Like you, you cannot do the traditional verification. Most people are are having to rely on C C for encoding the coding library to be able to fetch the data and then to verify that data. On the small snippet that I have on the uh, pass keys, I'm actually uh, untangling that data. I'm fitting it to the web cryptographic API that it's able to understand it, and then you can verify. Uh, without no external dependencies. The main takeaway is like you can skip a dependency, uh, which is, I don't, I don't think it's the, nice. the worst thing to do in the world. No, it's the, <laughs> it's the best thing to do in the world. So people can, if, the, if you want to dive in deeper, there's the uh, caveat section of passkey studies under the uh, DER, DER format. Uh, you can see more about that. You also mentioned this uh, P384 keys uh, are not supported. Uh, why is that a problem? Um... It's mostly because, to be really honest, for their context, as I mentioned, a lot of my background comes from the enterprise sector, and there are enterprise solutions where they usually P256 is or has not been enough. Like you will see that on hardware security modules, uh, PCI cards, and, and other other sections. So the ability to natively send uh, a passkey, like a signature that is able to fit into the systems uh, is, is, is huge. As for instance, as I mentioned before, the Estonian government uses this uh, elliptic curve for their own digital uh, ID certificates. If I was very excited to be able to use that because in the documentation, actually it says that they support it. However, no, nobody has actually done it. So I tested all the operating systems. Nobody really has supported P384. It's a pity, but yeah, I don't, I don't think you can actually do anything there. Uh, yeah, it's just a dead end for the time being. So you've got this new site, mpc.is, which is kind of a, a partner, a sister site to passkeys.is. And I guess where I want to start with MPC, multi-party computation. Uh, well, maybe first off, can you explain what multi-party computation is? Yes. I think multi-party computation, again, has been around for years, over 40 years, is pretty much the ability to generate uh, a defined output with not having all the required inputs given. And I really give it that similar, a similar description, but it's the ability to be able to compute data in different devices, isolated from each other, and that data make sense of all the inputs without having access to all the inputs. So... That is yeah, very, very, very rough terms. No, that's great. I, I like the example I've seen in some uh, videos explaining MPC. They talk about uh, trying to figure out what the salary, what the average salary yes. is between a bunch of people. and Millionaire's problem. Yeah. Oh, millionaire's problem. So it's, it's very interesting. So you can imagine like, uh, let's say um, your salary is five and my salary is three. Let's just use really simple numbers. If we want to figure out what the average salary is, which is obviously four, each of us can generate uh, three numbers that when summed, give our actual salary. So I'll come up with three numbers that will sum to three. Uh, so these can be positive and negative numbers. So if I could pick like uh, five and two and minus four, and that sums to three, and you could pick five and four and minus four, which sum to five, but knowing each of those numbers 
independently doesn't really tell you what the sum is for that person. So obviously with only two parties in the MPC, it's probably not really secure, but uh, let's just run with the <laughs> example. So we each generate three numbers that when summed equal our secret number that we don't want to share directly because we're, uh, I don't know, <laughs> not, not comfortable <laughs> sharing our salaries. And we, we then share these shares, uh, the three numbers that we've come up with uh, across all the devices incorporated in the MPC. Uh, and then if you take the sum of all of the numbers, uh, so of the numbers that I just listed, the sum would be eight. Or actually, is it eight? I'm, I might have messed up my Excel spreadsheet here. <laughs> in any case, the sum of all the numbers, I think it might, I'm going to go with it. I, I think it is eight. If you divide it by two, which is the number of parties involved in the computation, then you get four, which is the average between three and five, the two secret pieces of information that we didn't want to share. So you can come up yeah. with a computation where although you're sharing some information derived from the secret information that you want, you don't actually reveal that secret information in the first place. This is useful for things like if you want to collaborate across uh, industry or something and you, you don't want to reveal your private intellectual property, but you do want to come up with some kind of computation on the private intellectual property held by different corporations or potentially uh, for a cryptographic and especially blockchain application. There's other reasons you might want to use MPC. Is that a fair summary of, uh, of, of how MPC works and what it's, what it's good for? Yes, that is a beautiful, uh, a beautiful explanation. I will only add for the, the, the nerds in the, in the chat, uh, but for people looking up, it's, uh, uh, that is usually called a Pioneer crypto system, and it's uh, a property of additive homomorph homomorphism. So that is just if people want to uh, get fancy on that, uh, that is uh, also a little bit of the, the area that people can, can explore. And in general, homomorphism is a fascinating field in cryptography that please don't ask me for a little question. <laughs> I won't. I don't worry. I won't. I was going to ask you about Palier, though. Also. I was going to ask you about Palier because you mentioned it on the mpc.is site. If people want to check that out, uh, you do uh, a demo actually where you can spin up two, uh, you know, th this website in two different tabs or two different devices and they can interact to do distributed key generation. So maybe you could explain what is uh, DKG? Yes. So uh, DKG, the name stands for distributed key generation. Uh, pretty much is what you already described, that it's uh, the ability to compute over um, public information that you share between uh, two or more parties in a way that you can um, agree on a common secret that uh, it can be derived based on, on the distributed parts of it. So in it's... The, the part that I think made it very clear for me when I was understanding from an application point of view is that with distributed key generation, you get uh, two very important pieces of a whole system where looking at them individually mean nothing. Mm -hmm. So that's like a little bit what we already said uh, about your, your example of being able to have these this public keys and and how do they they this public this this uh, information that is related to to your original input, um, but on their own they they are useless. They just happen to have a more meaningful value on on together when when put together and in the context of a digital asset is generating uh, a private key or the equivalent of joint joint private key, which is not really a private key. It's more like the ability to generate a single curve point. But again, mm, that's, that's, that's interesting. Uh, 
specification about what it actually is doing. Because so distributed key generation, you're effectively getting an EOA, but there's no place in the world or on any computer where the private key exists. Instead, by doing a multi-party computation, you're able to sign data. Can you explain a little bit more about what you said about a point on the curve? Is it really what you're getting? Yes. Yes. So, so this is just more from from the concept that that a public key is just to to point to x y uh, points in your curve, and that's where that these two points x and y, those are the ones that you use for deriving an account address in any 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 blockchain system, right? Like your you know Ethereum, it's uh, I believe it's like a KK hash of these two points, and then you just take the first forty. By the divisible 40 characters, that is your Ethereum address. Uh, so you always need a public key to do that. When you successfully complete a, a DKG, and I will I will not go again into like there is multiple algorithms. There is GG18, GG20, uh, Lindel17. But in general, when when you complete uh, the the traditional what we understand uh, state of the art uh, DKG, you get key shares where you can compute or you have already agreed on these uh, points into the curve. So both key shares, they know, hey, we have, uh, we, we, we both have agreed on these X, y, uh, X and Y points. And what that effectively translates is that one, each key share knows, sorry, the, the, within the context of Ethereum, and that's, that's another point that I will make later, within the context of Ethereum, these two key shares know what Ethereum matters they control. And the beauty part of them being an XY endpoint is that that is that can only be that can be applied for any blockchain. That doesn't have to be an Ethereum blockchain. That that's one of the beauty of MPCs by being able to have a, a even uh, lower, so to speak. So if we were gonna sign an intent in with a DKG solution, I guess the intent would have to be communicated to all of the parties in the MPC DKG computation, and then they would do some operation, uh, like in your MPC.is example, like back and forth to generate the signed data that would be communicated to uh, an Ethereum RPC. Yes, in um, I'm, I'm using GG18. But the 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 way it works, and, and I'm trying to make it as obvious as possible on the website. I, I hopefully can finish <laughs> pretty soon. But the you you already can generate a, a website on a key on the website, but you cannot sign it on the website. But the, the signature part is you have a payload that is uh, very clear that it's just a, let's say an Ethereum transaction, and what you're doing is you're passing that to one device. We again generate the 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 Polyar cryptographic keys. And we do back and forth with the device. We're signing and co-signing uh, with our own key shares. And then eventually we agreed on, we are able to generate a full ECDSA that then we can transmit. But that process of, of back and forth, uh, that those rounds, uh, which is uh, the most more technical term, are, are, are transmitting part of the payload. And, and that's why usually you have encryption mechanisms around uh, these rounds. Such as you never and and you know zero knowledge proofs and, and other sort of uh, utilities to be able to transfer that information, but that's 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 how that's at the end of the day the core concept. You cannot just be 
having the keys and not exchange information with other keys because then you cannot sign anything. Both those keys, they need to talk to each other and they need to do a couple of rounds before they're able to uh, compute this this uh, uh, value that it's valid. And that's not just for creating DKG in the first place, getting getting a public address in the first place, but every time you want to, for example, sign a transaction with a DKG MPC wallet, you would have to do multiple rounds. Yes. And, 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 you know, most white papers are there out there on, on the MPC and on the topic are how to make these rounds uh, more effective, like reducing the amount of computation, reducing the amount of rounds, reducing the, the uh, size of the keys uh, uh, needed. Uh, some major companies, uh, probably the one in front of my head is Fireblocks. They recently, like as early as last year or two years ago, maybe, they launch an algorithm uh, that is called MPCCMP, which is probably as of today the, the fastest one to be able to execute uh, both DKG and TSS in record time for um, for a generic amount of data. Hmm. Fascinating. You mentioned TSS. Can you uh, just define threshold signature scheme uh, while we're while we're here? Sure. As I mentioned before, the the once you have a distributed key generation system, um, you then have to set up the, the, the distributed key generation system is is created in a way to have a threshold signature scheme in mind. What that means is that usually you cannot think one of without the other, and that's where the concept of M out of N um, or T out of N exists, right? So pretty much. Um, very similar, like multi-sig signatures that you need two out of three to generate a signature on a threshold signature schema. The only difference is that to be able to generate a valid signature, uh, you need a minimum amount of key shares for generating uh, a valid uh, a valid signature. So, uh, in 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 the mo- in the example that I put on the website, I just do a two out of two. So you need both key shares to be able to generate one signature. But in reality, you can have as many as you want based on the configuration as you want. Um, and then, of course, you can refresh the key shares. Again, that's a different topic. But the the goal or the purpose is that you can uh, you you in the same way that you in a multi-sig system, you don't want to get uh, isolated or one single point of failure you can actually here have a set of keys that are good enough to generate a signature. One very key difference, and no pun intended, on the multi-sig is that, again, you don't have any meaningful data on the key shares during this process. That can be argued. There, there are some attacks that have been shown that there might be some 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 ability to actually extract some valuable data, but the, the in reality the concept is that on their own these these pieces of information mean uh, close to nothing, and whereas in a multi-sig they are part of a whole system, right? You have a whole private key that is able to actually execute an on-chain transaction and do a governance sense, and this translates to MPC wallets being transparent on-chain. So when you have a multi-sig uh, wallet and they are doing transactions with all the members of the multi-sig, you always will see these on-chain transactions. Mm. Whereas an MPC wallet, all this governance is done off-chain, which is great for privacy. But of course, that gives the, the, that uh, also has the drawback that 
uh, for an external, it's not always very clear what sort of tool, model, algorithm is there. You might not and, know who, who was involved. Could could be a problem. Exactly. Or how, or how many? Or what is the operational control? Which is again, mm-hmm. dep- based on, on depending on on your target user, this can be a, a you know a benefit, right? And yeah, and I guess just just a, as a side comment there, I will say that the, the benefit in in terms of where's two comments. So so the first one is one of the unfortunate parts is that the feel is so new, like literally so new, like the first major MPC conference happened this week in Singapore. Really? <laughs> like literally this week, yes. The compute uh, MPC, which is just had like the major players over there, cryptographers from all over the world, very interesting. I almost really hard by missing it, but uh, yeah. <laughs> First um, MPC, yeah, that, MPC ever? But I thought MPC was old. Yeah, but for, for the context of digital assets, is is. Oh, okay, for, for blockchain. Town, right? Yeah, exactly. So, so for instance, Fireblock, which is one of the major uh, MPC custodian providers in the enterprise sector, uh, was founded in 2018, right? Mm. Uh, that's that's nothing, right? So if you think about it, like now they're worth like a, they're a way over the unicorn status, and they had been around for less than five years, right? What, what was the name of the conference you mentioned? Uh, Decompute. So hmm, very cool. The compute. Yeah, the compute.org. They probably already yeah, Silence Labs are in Singapore. They have people from DFS, Aptos, uh Sango, Certic, Farblogs, Microsoft, yeah, just uh Hashclock also. Ah, the the obvious yeah. uh, technology team mentioned Silence Labs earlier today. So interesting uh, yeah. to see them twice. Yeah. Apparently, they're exactly. yeah, they're, they're very, very much leading uh, kind of the the solution to actually the problem I want I want to talk to you about next, which is so MPC DKG. It's very cool that you can do this uh, kind of multi-party signing in a blockchain context, um, but what it really seems to be most useful for in the context of pass keys and AA smart wallets is. We talked about this problem where the R1 curve that's used for pass keys is not compatible with the EVM natively, at least currently, unless this EIP 7212 is to pass, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. which which seems maybe maybe won't happen. Uh, it's not not a surefire thing. Um, and so, in the interim, one solution is to use a smart contract that will verify R1 signatures. And so far, the right. best, uh, the, sort of the state of the art is Ledger has got that down to 70,000 gas uh, to do such a verification, right. which is acceptable, but really not something you want to force on all of your users, even on an L2, that every single time they do a transaction, they're essentially wasting 70,000 gas or close to it uh, every single time. Yeah. And so there's a couple other solutions, uh, but it seems to me from surveying all the options out there that pretty much everybody is putting something in between the passkey and the smart contract wallet such that it can just be a K1 signer, a traditional EOA, at least from the perspective of the AA wallet that is the signer. Uh, And yet the passkey is kind of what will allow you to initiate that signature through something in the middle, something like MPC, DKG. Uh, One example that I've seen come up several times is uh, Lit Protocol. Um, Yes. Is that, is that, more or less a summary of where MPC fits in in this stack? Yes. I mean, the, the Lit Protocol team, I've been lucky enough to, to talk with them in multiple contexts, and, and I believe they, their project is among also 
among the, the most interesting ones uh, to, to piece together the, the whole wallet MPC path equation. Um, they also have a very good demo. I mean, uh, iGlue is, is, I think, is based also on the protocol. And early before yeah. they were doing uh, these threshold nodes, where exactly you have that, right? Like once you have a CDSA signature, even if it comes from a couplet curve or, or a random one, like a Pasky ones, you can then create some sort of governance, and then you can translate that governance into a valid signature that works for whatever system you have. That's that's what Lit Protocol is, is currently doing on their Pasky implementation. Uh, I checked their smart contracts, and and they have kind of like a relay. Uh, and again, it, it it raised eyebrows in the concept of for the sake of of decentralization and what we're all trying to do. But the, it it is a very valid, um, very practical solution, very pragmatic solution in terms of key key management. But um, basically, and, for people who aren't familiar with it, they have a separate network of nodes that conforms to this Lit protocol which are doing this MPC DKG computation. Yes, exactly. So it's great because you get some of the advantages we just talked about and, and more still. Uh, for example, you can add uh, permissions or multi-sig kind of behavior at the MPC step uh, in the process and not have to uh, do all that work on-chain, which saves you gas, lets you do it more privately, as you mentioned. Um, you can you, so you can have multi-sigs, or you could have uh, restrictions on what kinds of things the MPC DKG will allow you to sign from a passkey or whatever kind of authentication you're using to initiate that uh, signature process computation. Um, but it also introduces a dependency on a whole new network that is a uh, distributed, uh, but uh, of questionable decentralization, of course. And even if it is decentralized, you know, you're sort of having another, introducing another dependency on a whole other decentralized network. So it's, it's not just pure EVM yeah. or L2 or L1, but now you have a whole new dependency, which is uh, maybe something you don't want to introduce, especially when it's as significant as being decisive in whether or not you have access to your wallet. Exactly. I mean, this is the challenge with MPC, and this is an idea that I wanted to voice er earlier, right? I mean... The and, and this is the, the challenge goes very simple that it, there's no current standard on how like MPC is this huge chainsaw that you can use to demolish anything, and you can use it as a, the whole DKG glue together wallets, create governance protocols. Like uh, it, it's a it's a very versatile versatile. Versatile, versatile, yes, yeah. <laughs> versatile tool um, that allows you know anybody to to provide like governance, you know, transactional layers and all sort of things on top of, of your wallet management solution. But the problem is that there is no standard. I I work in, and I mentioned before that my, my previous job was at CryptoBank, and I've been lucky to talk with like over 10, 15, 20 custodian provider solutions that are popping everywhere from. Uh, steady players to non-incumbent pl uh, players that are, you know, just building, and everybody's building their own thing, mm -hmm. right? So you, um, the same way, and, and maybe I, I need to talk with the, um, the Privy team, but in the same way that when you're doing Shamir secret sharing schema, and then you're splitting uh, these bytes of data for a key that you want to later use, um, there's no standard how to do that. How how do you store that? Like, what does that mean? There's no metadata 
Mm-hmm. There's not, they're not any different than 32, 64 bytes of data, right? And that's the problem a little bit of MPC right now. There are some algorithms that give you a little bit of that information. But if you were to look at an NFT token and you will see at the metadata that it has, then you will know that it's an NFT token. Right now, the MPC ecosystem is very fragmented on the protocols. First of all, on, on, on the algorithms that it uses, on the protocols that it supports, and last but not least, on the implementation that it has, right? So there are not that many implementations that are open source. It was actually a little bit of a challenge for me to put together the, the, the website just because um, I had to use uh, a bunch of libraries that were not, you know, that were a little bit obscure and, and, and you know, it's just not, it's not so easy as, you know, creating a random 32 bytes and calling it a private key. That is the major challenge that MPC has. It has very, you know, very good benefits and, and it has a lot of, of, a lot of uh, room to grow, but it will never be as easy as just generating, you know, random generator and give me 32 bytes. All right, that's my product key. Call it a day. Right, of course, of course. But it, what, what you're saying to me seems to indicate that there's room left for standardization uh, across this MPC space. So it's exciting oh, yeah. to hear that there's this uh, this conference and people are getting together. It sounds like there, there may still be uh, progress to be made in the next couple of years on this. For sure. So one question I had about this is, do, do you have any insight into how people are able to, I think you even talked about it as governance, you referred to it, but I, I spoke of multi-sig kind of functionality or permissions. Do you know how someone would add permissions at this uh, MPC layer? And, and when, I, when I ask you this question, I'm thinking of, uh, I spoke with, uh, the people from uh, Use Capsule, or I guess it's just called Capsule, but their website is Use Capsule, uh, who are building uh, another uh, smart wallet protocol uh, or platform. I'm, I'm not sure which they would self-describe mm. as, but they are using MPC for the majority of the permissioning um, so that instead of having, uh, you could still have some permissions on the AA wallet. For example, if you imagine like Frentech, uh, you know, you could say, I want this uh this or maybe Frantex not a great example, but I, I want this pass key to only be able to move this much ETH and only interact with this and this contract. That kind of permission could be in the AA wallet as a part of the uh, authentication limitations on a certain signer for that wallet, or it could be imposed at the MPC layer. Do you have any kind of sense of how one would do that at the MPC layer? It's something you, uh, I guess, configure when you set up a lit protocol? Yes. So, so I have an idea and this... I think the only part or like the, the the answer might not be very satisfying because it goes against the same concept that I said before that everybody's in, implementing their own. So I, I'm a little bit familiar about a capsule team and this is some of the solutions that I that that I it's not that I struggle to see the, the major benefit, but that are that I think their approach to, to non custody and self custody can be very challenging for someone coming from the enterprise world. Mm. And what I mean by that is, and answering your question, technically all these governance protocols and layers are implemented in a server somewhere, right? So they are hard-coded into a centralized solution in the same way that, you know, if you go to a, your traditional applicate, web to application that has an airbag model, when you have, say, well, user A has able it can only access files from created by user A and user B can only access files from user B. You have similar rules 
on a centralized infrastructure that allows to say, well, if this is a valid ECDSA signature, that means this signature came from user A, what resources can user A have? What policies can user A have? And these are very good use on the enterprise level. Like this, you will see this like, okay, if this is a transaction that was signed after 6 p.m., then my governance ledger, my, my AWS uh, uh, key management system will block the transaction, will not co-sign, right? And, and that's how these governance layers are enforced. The protocol is the, is the outlier here because they are pushing on the decentralized solution. But a lot of these key wallets, and I feel like I need to look at current key and all these other solutions that are popping everywhere. But it's effectively what they do is they have a web to infrastructure like an HSM or whatever, Intel HX or whatever it's, it's available on the web to ecosystem. They do exactly what you mentioned, like you use some ECDSA signature. It could be passkey or it could be your Google OAuth or whatever that identifies you as you. And this is this is uh, authorization. Um, and then then they get into their systems and in that systems, they tweak the policies and the control that is needed and they give you the resources based on those policies. So it, it, it's not something that could be, it's not just the opaqueness of it not being represented on a public blockchain, but it's that they could potentially even manipulate the permissions uh, despite sure. it being MPC, DKG based? Well, sure. I mean, it, it, the, why it became, yes, so, 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 yeah, so this is a serious concern and this is, um, I like what what Bibi said about okay, you 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 can guarantee or you're guarantee that they won't be able to to do a transaction without you. But the problem is twofold. That also means that you are not able to do a transaction without them. Right. Exactly. And that that, that is a tricky part. Um, it doesn't give you that much flexibility if even if, let's say we have the cryptographic primitives pleaded and we have to put them together you know, a like Dragon Ball Z fusion style, uh, if you get to pick the rules, where do we meet and, and how do we, uh, or how do you take my key or when do you take my, my key or how do you, how do you take, well, not my key, you, you will never take my key, but how do you take my signature or my co-signature and how do you, how do you open or close the gates? And the problem in the enterprise sector is, uh, and I, I'm only speaking about enterprise sector because I think it's interesting and it gives a glimpse of how the repo sector will ma- will mature, which is it's like, is this really non-custodial right. if you get to define the rules of engagement? Even if you can never generate a signature without me, if I can still not generate a signature without you and you are the one that defines the rules on when and how do we meet, is that really self-custody? You, you can be censored, essentially. I, I spoke with... Um the people from Capsule, and I'm going to have them on the show. So we'll we'll dive into this more uh, in a slightly less speculative way. But I, I think they they have some solutions around making sure that you can always exit. So they provide you with sure. enough of the keys, uh, enough of the shards that you can um, always exit the key, from what I understand. But we'll talk to them directly to to get to the bottom of it. But um, uh, it, it, yeah, I mean, that's also the same with the preview, right? And a lot of solutions like, well, we'll export your full key. And, and I think that's how they will say mm-hmm. they're non-custodial. But uh, yeah, when you have them, just just uh, 
you know, uh, asking tough questions. <laughs> <laughs> of course, you're not the we'll only see. one. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's All interesting. Right, I'll be listening. The Dragon Ball uh, reference you make is is maybe appropriate. I bet you could do a, a whole Paskies.is kind of site themed around. Uh, well, that sort would of... show my age, Nick. I'll, I'll <laughs> yeah, okay. Everybody loves, everybody loves Dragon Ball. But, uh, you know, there's fusion, but there's also collecting all of the Dragon Balls to get a wish. Hey, yeah. There's a few different metaphors. There's the earring way of uh, fusing. There's all these different ways. So, okay, let's let's round this out. We've had a wonderful conversation. Uh, a couple last things. Do you, do you have a sense of what the permissions architecture is going to look like for limiting access uh, to uh, certain types of transactions, either at the, AA, at the AA piece of the stack or in the MPC? Do you have a sense of how we can even do that? It just doesn't seem obvious to me. For example, let's say Frentech was not on Privy's Shamir solution, but instead built with uh, passkeys and MPC DKG and an AA wallet, whatever. Let's say it's state-of-the-art and we ignore all the problems that we mentioned. Um, it does still seem like if I were to log into Frentech with uh, an existing passkey-based AA wallet and only grant certain permissions to Frentech, if I were to limit how much, for example, ETH I could spend uh, when interacting with the Frentech contracts or limit that the passkey signer associated with Frentech only be able to interact with certain contracts and not others, it does seem like almost immediately the composability elements of, I don't know, let's say I want to buy something that's worth more than my limit or if I want to, uh, you know, move an NFT, uh, the NFT is in one contract, but I don't have permission with that passkey to interact with OpenSea, for example, uh, or the Seaport protocol. It seems really complicated to me to present this, I mean, even to work through it at all, but to present it in a way that's reasonable for users who are, let's say, less technical or less crypto native, it seems like it's going to be very, very challenging uh, to create some kind of nutritional facts or app store st style permissions or iOS style permissions around these like really nuanced and potentially like um, permissions that you want to change actually quite frequently if you decide that you want to do some behavior that's not permitted by the prior permissions you set. D is there any like real serious work on this or is everyone still just trying to figure it out? Uh, yes, no, I can actually answer that question because I'm, I'm I mean, it's going to sound like I'm mean, like they're sponsoring me, but they're, they're not. I just really like their, their team. Uh, Lucas Short and the safe, safe team mm. um, is one of those ecosystems that are exactly handling that, right? So, so safe, it, it, I mean, they're, they're also pioneering the, the, the concept of the smart wallet. They make a very good metaphor between an EO, EOA wallet being kind of like a feature phone and, and you know, like the smart wallet being like the iPhone. And they're really building, they're like modularizing their entire uh, multi-sig ecosystem. Because I think people still think that it's just a multi-sig, right? Like that's what SAFE is like. The Gnosis SAFE is the one that you use in 2019 to handle your treasury of your ICO. But nowadays it's an entire app store. It's a, it's a, a modular ecosystem for intents, for pie masters, for all these things. And what I like, I like about this, and answering your question, not as much in, on their protocol, but the one, the way I see it is I do think uh, the future will really will take advantage of the on-chain nature of, of the blockchain. And what I mean by that is I do think uh, in the future, you're going to go to other scans, you're going to see a wallet, and it's going to be a smart wallet, right? I think we're going to be moving away from all this EOA. We're going to have all the smart wallets. And then in that wallet, on-chain, you'll be able to say, hey, this is a this is a wallet that can only spend up to this amount of money. 
It usually gets, it can only be used between 3 and 5 p.m. It has four signs. Like you will be able to see all that information in the same way, like in a very granular way, such as that gives you the, the visibility of your ability to engage. And, and, and you know, we're talking briefly about intents, your ability to actually use these tools. Because right now what is happening, and you see on this all, you know, phishing attacks and hacks that, you know, you may have thousand approvals, you will not know about it. Maybe you did, uh, you approved some random core pool in 2020 and now that got drained or on the fork, they send a message. Like, it's really hard to, on a, on a traditional wallet, understanding how the system works to do that on a, on a purely EOA base. And the, the problem again with, with MPC is that this might not be very transparent. So even though if your wallet is fully managed in, and, and you know, you, you have this account address that will never have this private key, will never generate a, uh, a bad signal tr- transaction. The problem is that you could still have an operational mistake or, or something going wrong on that side of things that will, will not be ideal. If you were to put, you know, really identify where would I think, I think we're going to move to a lot of like on-chain primitives where there will be a modular system that I should put in there. I will took, take a look very close to the safe ecosystem, what they're doing there. And yeah, I do think that's, that's where we're going to go. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's just my... Because really we need to, so I guess one, one research topic for the future is this, you know, is, is it possible to have MPC uh, or some equivalent solutions? Are, are they naturally going to move to cheaper blockchain contexts in order to be more easily verified? Uh, or is there some way to fix in the MPC DKG setup that the rules can not be changed by the operator of whatever the... The, the DKG network is. Um, and, and obviously blockchain and AA wallets are kind of a solution to that already. So maybe maybe that is just the solution. I mean, you you will probably see both. And that's a little bit on, on the standard question, right? So you will see an improvement and a standardization of all the MPC solutions and tools out there. You will eventually see more open source implementation. You will see then standards. I, I will say that, you know, we're on the MPC world, we're very close to uh, early ages of WordPress, right? Like everybody was installing WordPress and, you know, it was just like a mismatch of, uh, you, you could do monstrous things within a WordPress <laughs> installation <laughs> back in, in 2000, right? And, and even earlier. Huh? But the, the, the point is, is eventually people understood was the best way to use WordPress, how do you install it, you had a common partner, like all these things, but it could only be there because it was open source, right? And now the open source community, <laughs> or like the MPC community around digital assets has some things open source, but they are not quite there yet. We are a little bit already on this WordPress chaos mode with, with a lot of MPC solutions, but we're going to standardize the way you create plugins, you're going to standardize, I mean, how these key shares are parsed, right? I mean, today it's crazy, but the marshalling and unmarshalling, like the encoding and decoding of some of these key shares, that's one of the most annoying problems that I had. Like, it's, it's just building this demo page for me was a nightmare because a lot of these MPC solutions, they expect some sort of like bind manipulation that is usually mostly done on the back end, and they don't account for the ability of a dumb browser being able to just parse elective core points that they cannot be uh, strongified. But anyway, that, that is just me complaining. No, no, no. And it's, it, the, it's real because uh, making everything client 
capable is sort of the logic of the thrust of serverless, you know, design for, for you know, uh, for the past few years doing things like a Cloudflare worker or any kind of worker that's essentially just a, a client, uh, it, but in the cloud to not have those abilities seems to kind of ignore the, the thrust of where a lot of the development energy has been going. So I, it is interesting. And I also think, and one last comment there, I think that's where we're going to go, right? Like you see the, I mean, also, uh, I was very, <laughs> very vocal about the future being about native apps and app stores being open about all the things. I'm, I'm a fool on the web. Like I know it's going to be, it's super hard to get, you know, this non-janky feeling of on most mobile applications. But really, if, if I really go to my rules, right, if I remove my, fancy banker suit and I go to my my, <laughs> my cyberpunk route is like, no, like you really want something that's full client validation. I can host it on an IPFS node. I can deploy it on my own node, put my own uh, RPC endpoint and, and, you know, literally configure everything so I control the full ah. stack. I think they, there's a still a lot of people in the crypto ecosystem that want that. And until you can get that done, on account abstraction without having, I mean, when until you don't have to, well, well, in, well, you can still run your own bundlers and paymasters when you can still run your own web out and servers to engage whatever decentralized protocol. As long as there's an option for a full decentralized stack that you can use, I think that's that's going to be that's going to be the, the the best way to go. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Have you seen uh, No Nothing Labs and their No Seed Phrases XYZ demo of uh, Halo Two based? Uh, signing rather than uh, R1 signing? I think you mentioned, but I honestly, yeah. So, I mean, I saw in some capacity, but to me, it was hard to tell whether or how different it was from a just yet another passkey. Yes, agreed. Uh, agreed. But they, they, they're using uh, like a ZK technology under the hood instead. Uh, unfortunately, I talked to them and they said that currently it's, I think, 400,000 gas to, uh, to verify okay. on-chain. But it does seem like maybe um, an alternative to MPC solutions and DKG solutions where instead you use a ZK prover instead of an MPC DKG uh, in the middle between the passkey right. and the AA wallet. It doesn't seem like it's um, very applicable, at least for a multi-chain EVM context, but right. perhaps on a chain where the curve is built into the chain as a precompile on a specific L2, uh, then it might make a lot of sense if, if it was as cheap as uh, EC Recover to verify, then maybe, uh, what interested me about this example, and I asked them, I, I, it's on the authority of the team, so I, I really don't understand how it works beyond what they've told me, but they tell me that the prover doesn't require any secret information and doesn't require any ASICs or advanced hardware. So if you if their service were to go down, aside from the domain passkey problems we talked about earlier, presuming that that's yes. not a problem, you could spin up your own uh, ZK prover, um, maybe even locally or in the cloud or someone else could do it for us. And that would mean that even if their service went down, we could still have... Uh, the ability to sign and control smart wallets with a ZK solution in between the passkey and the AA wallet, as opposed to the MPC DKG solutions, which require this whole network, uh, which could go down right. or, or censor you. I mean, yes. So, so I, I, I think that's a little bit of how the hollow, hollow. I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing the halo, uh, CK, yeah, proof of fire. That, that, that's a little bit on, on. I mean, I'm, I'm familiar with some of the serial knowledge solutions out there, and I do think we'll see more and more. 
uh, implementations, particularly on ECDSA verification. So one of the, I think there are some people that are working on implementing circuits that are able to validate an ECDSA signature, like on, on zero knowledge, although I, I don't think we are getting there quite yet. I mean, Sysmo is one of those projects, but that you need to do uh, to generate a join a group for prover verification. The problem with zero knowledge is that usually you need to enroll yourself in some capacity, but there's right now not an easy way to know whether you can prove you are the owner of an address without showcasing you are the owner of an address mm-hmm. of uh, an NFT or whatever. But I can see how on, on because of the way that they, 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 some of the cryptographic primitives work, how that can be used as a way to prove off-chain at the end of the day, the, the, the prover um, might be able, I mean, that's the whole sequence or dilemma and blah, blah, blah. But this is this is the way that you can actually uh, approve transactions uh, with, with primitive data that is not accepted on, on a traditional network. But that, that I, I totally agree with you, the added benefit will be when it is possible because then then you know your your speed uh, goes uh, incredibly fast your gas goes your gas goes incredibly low and then becomes uh, actionable on a day-to-day basis yeah so, without, without yeah. A, a new dependency or at least a dependency that can be replicated without a problem it doesn't require a whole network of active nodes or or any secrets that they have at exactly. least that's what they tell me but it seems very cool Promising, but yeah. probably more long-term solution, and maybe not a multi-chain EVM solution or multi-chain right. outside of EVM, but maybe specific to a particular uh, chain that would have this built in. Yeah, I mean, there's already non-EVM. Well, I mean, although like CK Sync already has natively has implemented. Uh, I mean, Rely Finance was one of the first, first, first projects that I saw that I was using passkeys, and they have that natively implemented on on CK Sync. So that that works there, um, and the they R1, have a really R one is built in uh, to zk sync. I, I don't think it's built in. I, I, don't, I need to remember how do they. Either it's either it's super cheap. You actually know maybe because they have a really good repository. Count abstraction. They have a really good repository where they are actually showing how this this was mostly uh, updated, and I, I don't think they they support. Uh, naturally uh, passkeys, but they, I do think, what, I think the difference is that they support Fortran uh, 37 natively. Ah, yeah, yeah. So this is, this is, this is the, that's the difference. So probably the signature and, and might not be as expensive as it is in, in, you know, your, your layer one, but because they support natively the ER27 and said, yeah, okay, they have a template. I need to find that out, and I'll share later on Twitter. <laughs> All right, yeah. yeah, let me know. I'll I'll add it to the show notes. Jose, this was an amazing episode, a true marathon about passkeys. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for uh, your energy and insights. This was uh, really wonderful. Hey, no, I had a blast. Thank you to Unique, and yeah, sorry for the disconnection times, but I, I really enjoyed it. And I hope that yeah, people find it interesting, and I'll still be available online. So if anyone wants to. Keep poking. I'll keep trying to expand the resources in the network, and yeah, we're all uh, we're all in this together, I guess. Yeah, definitely. We we appreciate you. So passkeys.is, mpc.is. Where can they find you on Twitter and uh, and and Farcaster? Yes. So zero x uh, JJPA. I know that's not a validex code, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, Crypto- uh, cryptographers GPA. are going to be angry. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, you have no idea how many times I heard that. Oh, it's kind of like, all right. Oh, <laughs> all right. So it was I'm enough sorry. to get you to change your name for Farcaster a little bit. Yeah. No, I, I say I'm sticking with this for digits. I bought enough domains. I'm not going to do that again. But uh, on Farcaster, you're just JG, JJPA, I think. Is that right? Could be, yeah. Uh, <laughs> one second. It'll be in the show notes I, I need if anyone to... has a doubt. Yeah, you know, I, I think is yeah, 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 you're right, you're right. Yeah, I need to pause more there more often. I'm trying to get more uh, Alton Lens. I am like uh Sura JJPA. So great. And is cool. there anywhere else, a mirror, blog, uh LinkedIn, something else you, you like to point people to? Um, most of my networks are on JJ Paris Aguinaga, which is my, my full last name. So I call it uh, Latin origin person. I have like eleven last names, so <laughs> It took me a little bit of time before I managed to compromise to the four letters, but uh, any any tunnels on my network, you will be able to see me there. Uh, all right. Well, thank you so much. And thank you to everyone who came through and listened live and who's listening to the recorded version. If you're listening to this live next week, Friday, September 22nd, I'll be talking to Scott Sonarto, who's building his own L2 uh, from scratch, which should be an interesting conversation. So uh, I hope to see you all there. Jose, thanks again. This was great. Thanks to you, Nick. Appreciate your time and have a great one. All right. You too. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody. Thank you. Goodbye. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of Web3 Galaxy Brain. To keep up with everything Web3, follow me on Twitter at Nicholas with four leading ends. You can find links to the topics discussed on today's episode in the show notes. Podcast feed links are available at web3galaxybrain.com. Web3 Galaxy Brain airs live most Friday afternoons at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2200 UTC on Twitter Spaces. I look forward to seeing you there.